0: This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action.
1: Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a black-left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co-host, Nellie Bailey. Coming up, black people in Great Britain go to prison at approximately the same rate as in the United States. We'll take a look at the state of the human rights movement in that country. And black women in the U.S. suffer far more problems in giving birth and after their babies are born. We'll take a look at racial disparities in treatment of postpartum depression.
0: But first, President Donald Trump brought the world to the brink of another East war with the assassination of the top general in the Iranian armed forces. But political assassination is nothing new in Washington. We spoke with a renowned expert on international law, Francis Boyle. Boyle is a professor of international law at the University of Illinois. He says Donald Trump is guilty of many impeachable acts, but the Democrats aren't charging him with his worst.
2: I grew up on the uh, south side of Chicago, and I sort of analogized what the Democrats are doing here to the uh, federal government going after Al Capone for tax fraud instead of murder and racketeering. The lists of offenses for which Trump should be impeached are far more serious than what they're doing here. I, I don't doubt I've read the debate and everything that there are grounds here, abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. But, you know, this pales into uh, insignificance compared to uh, everything else President Trump has done.
1: And specifically, the assassination of Qasem Soleimani.
2: Of course, this is uh, murder and assassination. It violates an executive order against uh, assassinations that's been on the book's since the Ford administration, it violates the uh, International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, to which we are a party. It violates the uh, United Nations Charter. I-, I could go on you know, <laughs> for a long time here, Glenn, and I don't want to waste a lot of your time or that of
1: your listening audience. Well, I think we should, however, not just with Trump's transgressions, but prosecuting Trump for these illegal actions, these acts of war, would open up a Pandora's box for any Democrat or Republican.
2: Right. If you're interested, you can send me an email and I'll send you a speech I gave here last year when the uh, bootlickers at the University of Illinois gave President Obama an award for ethics and government. And I uh, organized a uh, protest and a rally right out from where Obama was speaking, and uh, gave a speech and denouncing Obama at the University of Illinois. But the difference, of course, is that Obama was behind me at Harvard Law School. We were both magna cum laude graduates of um, Harvard Law School, and Obama knew that he was engaged in behavior that was illegal, criminal, and unconstitutional. Between you and uh, me, uh, I don't know what President Trump knows one way or the other. It's very difficult for me to uh, figure him out, but certainly Obama knew.
1: Well, Trump came into office with the intent on making war of some kind against Iran a priority, but he built on a political history of his predecessors. Even the nuclear deal that Obama consummated with Iran was based on a premise that was false, that the Iranians had a nuclear program when even the CIA and all the other U.S. intelligence agencies declared in 2007 and again in 2010 when Obama was in office that Iran had no such program. You're correct.
2: Iran had no nuclear weapons program. They did have a nuclear program in the sense of nuclear power which they were permitted to do under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. It was their perfect right to be doing what they're doing. So yeah, all that uh, by uh, Obama and Kerry was pretty much a pretext, but Iran went along with it because they were under so much pressure by the United States government to do something So they went along with the Obama propaganda saying, well, okay, if you're saying we're pursuing a nuclear weapon, fine, we have no problems eliminating, restricting a nuclear weapons program that we don't have in the first place, as long as you're prepared to uh, lift your uh, economic sanctions uh, against us. So you're, you're right about that point.
1: Yes, and I want to pursue U.S. policy pre-Trump as well as during Trump with you because you're a world-renowned expert on international law. And Syria and Libya, all of these adventures were steeped in illegality. Glenn, you're right. And again,
2: if you send me the uh, email, I will send you my speech denouncing uh, Obama When he was here, I was right outside the uh, lecture hall leading a protest against him, and I went through everything. Well, I couldn't go through eight years of Obama, but I went through the critical elements, his destruction of Syria, Libya, Yemen, his drone murder extermination campaign, that even Chomsky has said is one of the major terrorist operations in the world today, etc., You're perfectly right there, Glenn, about Obama. And this isn't to single out Obama one way or the other, but he was behind me at Harvard Law School. He's a magna cum laude graduate of Harvard Law School. We even had the same teacher of the philosophy of law, Roberto Unger, who said about Obama on the BBC and elsewhere, quote, Obama is a disaster, unquote. And, you know, I agree with Professor Unger. He was the founder of the critical legal studies movement in uh, American legal education. So you have both Obama's teacher and, and I was favorably disposed for Obama when he was a legislator over here in Springfield, Illinois. If you read the press releases and campaign speeches Obama gave while he was running for president, legally, they were impeccable. But once he got into office, he was just as bad as Bush Jr., if not worse.
1: When Americans do speak of illegalities in U.S. conduct of foreign policy, which is rare, but when they do speak of it, they usually talk in terms of impeachment or violations of U.S. law. But we have international law, and that's your bailiwick. And we have also the experience of Nuremberg. And in Nuremberg, the judges, including American. judges, decided that the conduct of the press is also potentially culpable in terms of crimes against humanity. You're right,
2: Glenn, and international law is part of United States domestic law. Treaties are the supreme law of the land under Article Six of the Constitution. Customary international law is federal common law as determined by the United States Supreme Court. So yes, Violations of international law are also impeachable. And regretfully, people lose sight of that fact. We just concentrate on ourselves and our own domestic legal order as very narrowly defined. And you're right about the uh, Nuremberg prosecution. That's an executive agreement that we signed. So it's substance for impeachable offenses. The Nuremberg Judgment you can find that reported in the official reporting service, West Publishing, Federal Rules of Decision. So, again, you can impeach on uh, that basis. As for the news media, you are corrected. Rosenberg was tried at Nuremberg for his media work, including Der Sturmer and the other terrible incitement against Jews, and he was executed. Not that I support anyone's execution these days. And then likewise, in the prosecutions for the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, you did have media figures convicted for incitement to genocide. And, you know, if you look at the uh, mainstream news media today, we could go down the list of these characters. Bill O'Reilly, Sean Hannity, in particular, both of whom I have dealt with personally on their shows
1: well, editorially and certainly in most of their articles, most of the corporate media has supported all of the U.S. illegal wars of the 21st century.
2: You're correct. I read the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal every day, and I also have a subscription to the uh, Washington Post. And you're certainly correct indeed. But but, Glenn, this goes all the way back to the uh, Vietnam War as Herman and Chomsky pointed out in their book, Manufacturing Consent, that the news media cheerleaded the genocidal war against Vietnam that murdered 58,000 young men of my generation and exterminated 3 million Vietnamese, basically half an Adolf Eichmann, and the news media were in on it until the very end. So nothing's really changed from my perspective here, opposing the uh, Vietnam War as a
1: young man. As a scholar of international law, I would think that you get quite frustrated in this kind of political environment in which the corporate media seldom, if ever, bring up international law.
2: You're certainly correct, Glenn, that if you read the corporate media, look at the corporate media TV talking heads, this is pretty much warmongering all up and down, and that's all you're seeing, and that's all you've been seeing for quite some time. There's almost no one on there talking about peace. I was, after the uh, terrorist incidents there on September 11, 2001, I was invited to go on O'Reilly on September 13, uh, 2001, and debate O'Reilly on war versus peace. And I did, you know, in front of millions of people there. I made the best case I could to the American people against war. But that's very rare to happen.
1: In terms of the Democratic presidential candidates, Tulsi Gabbard and Bernie Sanders seem to be the only ones that are not reticent to at least address foreign policy. And Sanders only recently came out of his shell. Well, I'm a political independent,
2: so I always have been. Years ago, when I decided to do this work, I concluded that the only way I could do it would to remain a political independent so that I could work with people of good faith and goodwill of all political parties. That being said, and I'm not here to endorse Gabbard or Sanders, but you're correct. At least there are two Democrats speaking out against the tide. For example, This week, Senator Sanders and Congressman Ro Khanna introduced a uh, War Powers Resolution that I have read, and it's a good resolution. It cuts off the funding for what Trump is doing against Iran. The other one voted by the Democrats, Pelosi, that's a joke and a fraud. It's got so many holes uh, through it that Trump and Pompeo could drive a truck through it. And certainly Pelosi and the keynote Democrats are aware of that. Remember, Slotkin is CIA, once CIA, always CIA. So that resolution by Slotkin, that was just kabuki theater by the Democrats. We know they've been warmongering for quite some time against Russia, for sure. There is another vote coming up next week in the Senate by Senator Kaine. I have read his Resolution again, another joke and a fraud because at the end of it, it says, Well, nothing in this resolution will prevent the uh, president from defending the United States in the event of an imminent attack. Well, this is idiocy, of course. We know that's all Trump and Pompeo and the rest of them have been claiming about why they murdered Soleimani. Well, there was an imminent attack coming. And those were all lies. I mean, Trump and Pompeo, you know, they're pathological liars. So the Kane Resolution isn't going to accomplish anything, but the Sanders and other resolution that was introduced yesterday, I think it is something substantive. I think we should support it. I think we should fight for it, even if it might go down. I think we should all mobilize in support of that sanders rocana legislation, yes.
1: Some of us remember the mid-70s, when the Church Committee hearings put the reputation of the CIA at its lowest ebb in post-war history and led Republican President Gerald Ford to issue a still-standing executive order against assassinations of foreign officials. Right, and it's still
2: on the books today. These Federalist society lawyers have tried to interpret it out of existence, but it is still there. And that can be used for grounds of impeachment as well. Sure, of course. But it seems to me most of the mainstream Democrats have supported the uh, assassination of Soleimani, which clearly violates international law and our own executive order. So the hypocrisy here by the warmongering Democrats is simply astounding. But I'm used to this having lived through the Vietnam War. Remember, it was the Democrats who started that war and escalated that war and lied to us about that war, starting with Kennedy and and continuing through Johnson. So I've never trusted the Democrats between you and me. I did want to make one more point since we're talking here to the Black Agenda Report, and that is the uh, African-American Congressman Al Green has said that Trump should be impeached for uh, racism. And everyone dismissed that. I think it's a serious issue. The United States government is a party to the treaty, the International Covenant, on the elimination of all forms of racial discrimination. And this is the supreme law of the land under Article Six of the United States Constitution. And I think that Congressman Green could make an excellent case For impeachment on the basis of that tree. And I would be if Congressman Green wants to work with me on that, I'd be happy to do so free of charge.
0: That was Professor Francis Boyle speaking from the University of Illinois at Champaign-Urbana.
1: Black people make up only about 6% of the population of Great Britain but comprise a huge proportion of that nation's prison population. Great Britain never experienced a civil rights movement on its own soil. But Adam Elliott Cooper, a black activist and doctoral student at Oxford University, says Britain's human rights movement took place in its African and Asian and Caribbean colonies during their struggles for independence. Elliott Cooper says the British Empire's oppression and exploitation of colonized
3: people worldwide has come home to roost. Yeah, I think it's certainly correct. I was really inspired by a speech by a black publisher and writer and activist called John LaRose that he made a number of decades ago called We Did Not Come Alive in Britain. And what he argues in this speech that was turned into an article in a journal called Race Today was that anti-racism in Britain didn't begin within the British mainland, within the borders of the British Isles. It began in Britain's colonies. And so when we think about the history of anti-racism in Britain, we often don't think about Britain having a civil rights movement. But In many ways, Britain did have a civil rights movement. It just didn't take place on the shores of Britain. It took place in its colonies. It took place as part of its anti-colonial and anti-apartheid struggles. And so understanding the history of Britain, as being not the history of a nation state, but the history of an imperial state, I think helps us to understand that anti-racism is intrinsically bound up with anti-imperialism. And it helps us to have a more internationalist understanding of the kind of struggles that we face today.
1: Yes, that must be a very fertile ground in Britain, where all these colonized people, black colonized people, can compare notes on the experience in
3: the belly of the colonial beast. I think you're right. So we've seen things in Britain's history, such as the many Pan-African conferences, which brought together African-Americans like W.B. Du Bois, as well as people from the African continent, like um, Nkrumah, as well as black people in the Caribbean, like George Padmore and others, all together in the in the historic center of empire. And I think we Trying to remember and recapture those legacies, I think is really, really important for anti-racists, not just in Britain, but in many parts of the world, to understand that internationalist history and to try to remember those kinds of legacies in in shaping our anti-racist politics today, which I think would improve and I think strengthen the kind of struggles that we're engaged in in these difficult times.
1: Britain is also the place that Karl Marx got carbuncles on his butt studying for (laughs) years in the British Museum and writing his great books. But Brits seem, despite the fact that they colonized so many different people, seem to be limited to thinking in terms of class
3: rather than race. I think that Britain has a peculiar and unfortunate amnesia when it comes to its colonial and imperial history. And so whilst many British people are proud of the British Empire and find it a place of honour and patriotism, they don't really know very much about it. Britain likes to remember itself as the nation which helped to abolish the slave trade. Not doesn't like to remember itself as the largest slave trading nation in human history. They like to remember itself as the nation which brought Africa and Asia, the railways and education systems and the rule of law. It doesn't like to remember the fact that the building of those railways for indentured labour worked thousands, if not millions of workers to death. It doesn't like to remember the fact that that rule of law, which was applicable in some circumstances, certainly wasn't applicable when those Asian or African peoples wanted to gain their independence. And so this misremembering, this amnesia when it comes to the reality of Britain's colonial and imperial histories means that Britain can kind of tell itself a whitewashed version of its history. It can tell itself a version of history which separates the politics of class and race and tells itself a story of capitalism which only exists within the borders of Britain and therefore is able to tell itself a story which is ostensibly white.
1: Yes, Britain's civilizing mission in its own mind seems much like the United States' exceptionalism in which the US justifies everything it does because it had a dream about human (laughs)
3: equality. Certainly. I mean, um, in many ways, I think people forget that America is probably Britain's greatest legacy. And rather than understanding the United States as something which is wholly separate and wholly different, which again is a part of Britain's peculiar colonial amnesia, very few British people think about why it is that people in Canada or the United States or Australia or New Zealand or South Africa speak English and have large white populations. It just seems to be a quirk of history. It's not something that is bound up in the the legacies of genocide and enslavement and, and colonial control. And so I think understanding but interconnected histories of imperialism and colonisation, which make Britain and America intrinsically linked, both historically and, of course, in our contemporary moments, both when it comes to understanding racism and in, understanding modern forms of imperialism in places like Libya and Iraq and, and elsewhere, I think, again, is a, a way of strengthening those links of solidarity, not simply with the victims and recipients of modern forms of imperialism, but also understanding the interconnections of racism, which can help I think, strengthen links between black Americans um, on both sides of the Atlantic.
1: Yes, Brits like to think of themselves as the products of the Enlightenment rather than the barbarity of colonialism. But the Enlightenment itself was shot through with racist mentalities.
3: I think that what's really interesting about the Enlightenment and the idea that the Enlightenment is something that was European, I think it's really Disrupted when we think about the ways in which the Enlightenment could never be a European project because the Enlightenment took place during European colonisation. And so the ideas that were emerging from Europe were always in contestation and in conversation with the peoples and places that Europe were colonising at that time. And I think there's no better example of that than the Haitian Revolution. So whilst we have all of these thinkers from Europe which are espousing these enlightened ideas about the rule of law, or about the equality of man and all of these types of things. On the one hand, there is this contradiction, whereas on the other hand, they're exterminating indigenous peoples of the Americas and Australasia and rising as the largest slave trading nations in human history. And whilst they're enacting these brutalities on many parts of the world, exterminating these peoples in the Americas and Australia, capturing land in South Asia and the African continents. And whilst at the very same time this is happening, they're also forced to contend with their own contradictions. And they're forced to contend with these contradictions, I think, in no more acute way than when faced with the Haitian Revolution. When these revolutionaries defeat both France's imperial powers and uh, the leadership of their republican armies following the French Revolution, after they defeat Britain one of the largest imperial powers at the time after they defeat the Spanish they develop a constitution which is far more enlightened than the French constitution than the American constitution and by any indeed any other constitution that exists at that time by not only outlawing slaves but outlawing racism and other forms of racial discrimination as well and so I think understanding the enlightenment as something which isn't both contradictory in terms of its divisions of humanity, but those those who deserved the ideals of the Enlightenment and those who did not, but also forcing Europe to look at itself, for to, to, to the, the colonised peoples to hold a mirror up to Europe, to say, look at the, these contradictions and look at what we've done with these ideas that you think are your own, but you haven't even had the goal to put them into practice, I think makes the Enlightenment a really, really important tool in showing how anti-racism can take these kinds of ideas and bring them into the world in a far more humane and progressive manner.
1: The Black Power movement in the United States is usually dated to the 60s, although it had many predecessors. When does Black
3: Power arrive in Britain? I think black power arrives in the British colonies before it arrives on the British mainland. And for me, I begin that in the multitude of slave uprisings that we saw across Britain's colonies in the late 1700s. One brilliant example takes place across the islands of the Caribbean in the late 1700s following the Haitian Revolution. So you've got islands like St. Lucia, for instance, which was fought between France and Britain around 12 to 14 times um, in the mid to late 1700s, where you see enslaved Africans rising up against their British colonial masters, aided and abetted by radical French revolutionaries such as the Jacobins and others during this period, defeating the British and freeing themselves for a period of time until the British bring reinforcements and re impose slavery upon the small island of St. Lucia. But it was in this time that we see the establishment of ideas of black freedom emerging in places like the Caribbean and many formerly enslaved African people developing maroon communities across these islands, such as Jamaica, such as St. Lucia, such as Dominica, and many others. But of course, black power in the more modern sense, the 20th century incarnations of them, I think, really begin to emerge on the British mainland when we see the establishment of the Pan African Congress. So we see people like W.E.B. Du Bois, George Padmore, Marcus Garvey, many other p- people coming to Britain and establishing newspapers, establishing concerts, establishing organisations which are thinking about black emancipation and black liberation across the world. And I think these really set the foundations for what's formally called a black power movement in Britain, which emerges in the post-war period. So you, you have the emergence in the 1950s and 1960s of organisations like the Black Panther Movement, the Black Eagles, the Black Unity and Freedom Party, all of these militant organisations inspired both by the black power movements in the United States, but also by the anti-colonial movements and third world struggles taking place in Africa, Asia, and the Caribbean during this time as well. Many of their demands are similar to those of the United States, so they would set up independent black schools and educational services, other kinds of social services, and get, They were engaged in housing struggles, all of these kinds of things as well. But many of these people were first or second generation migrants from Africa, the Caribbean and other former British colonies. And so they had very strong cultural, social and familial links with these countries. And so they were often going back and forth. And so when there were socialist revolutions in places like Grenada, or anti-capitalist uprisings in islands like Trinidad, or there were attempts at socialist experiments in places like Ghana and and Tanzania, you'll see strong links of solidarity between the British black power movements and those attempts at socialism and independence and liberation across Britain's colonies and former colonies as well.
1: And of course, socialism has never been a dirty word in Britain. I get that the black movement in
3: Britain is a lot more socialist than the United States. I think that there certainly hasn't been the same kind of McCarthyism in Britain as we saw in places like the United States. There is a Labour Party in Britain, as there is in in every major European country, and their commitment to socialism has always been overt. So it's always been a lot easier for anti-racists and other black power movements to identify themselves as socialists and embrace the the fact that we're never going to defeat white supremacy unless we also dismantle capitalism. But at the same time, neoliberalism and the kind of influence that we've seen under Reagan and under Thatcher has developed, I think, what in the United States is often termed a black misleadership class. In fact, after a series of urban uprisings and revolts in parts of Britain in the early 1980s, the Margaret Thatcher administration went to the United States to say, how do we deal with these black insurrections that are taking place across our country? And what Ronald Reagan told Margaret Thatcher's administration is that they need to develop and establish a stronger black middle class. And it would be this black middle class that would enable the British establishments to be able to keep stronger tabs on black communities and trying to co-op sections of the black population, which would enable them to better control and co-opt, I guess, in many ways, black communities. And so we've seen this in the comparable ways of the United States where black people have been incorporated into sections of the capitalist class, into sections of the political class, into sections of the media establishment and elsewhere. And so we have similar kinds of contestations and problems between socialist and working class black communities engaged and committed to radical struggle and radical change and those who have been incorporated into sections of the black establishments who simply want liberal tokens of representation and the money and, and privileges that, that come with it.
1: Some Brits argue that mass black incarceration in Britain is proportionately greater than in the United States.
3: Statistically, the proportion of black people incarcerated in Britain is statistically greater than that of the United States, but I don't think we're going to get anywhere of any kind of competition. Certainly, the problem of mass incarceration in the United States is far worse than possibly any other industrialized nation or overdeveloped nation that exists on the planet. And so, I think part of that reason we have this disproportionate, vastly disproportionate incarcerated black population in this country is because we have a relatively small black population in Britain. I think the black population in Britain is roughly like 6% of the population, whereas it's significantly greater in the United States. And of course, whilst black people might be slightly more disproportionately incarcerated in Britain in comparison with black people in the United States, overall, the prison population is far smaller than the prison population in the United States, even if we take into account the differences in population. But what I think is important is that What's happening in Britain and the United States is a system of post-industrialization, where you're seeing jobs, particularly industrial jobs, being moved to countries in the global south. And so you have large surplus populations, particularly black and other minoritized racial groups, but no longer necessarily being needed by capital in the way that they perhaps were in previous generations. And so we're therefore seeing the state intervene, criminalize many of these communities, and therefore funnel them towards being incarcerated. And I think seeing the similarities between those kinds of struggles, I think would better strengthen the links of solidarities that we need in order to resist.
1: In your article, you seem to be saying that blacks in Britain know more about the U.S. black movement and its history than about their own resistance inside
3: Britain and in their home countries. I think there are two problems that we face when it comes to understanding the history of anti-colonialism and even the history of anti-racism in Britain. And I think the first is that the United States is the global hegemon and it's also a global cultural hegemon. And therefore, that means that we're more likely to learn about Martin Luther King than we are about anti-racists like Darkus Howe and others on the British mainland and in Britain's colonies. And I think the second thing is that with many nation states, they're far more comfortable with the crimes of others than they are with the crimes that they have committed themselves. And so the British press and the British school curriculums and the British government are far more comfortable talking about the histories of racism in the United States, the civil rights movements, the Black power movements and and other things like that, than they are with talking about the anti-colonial struggles that have had to be waged against the British state and the anti-racist struggles that have been waged against them as well. And so these two problems mean that for many young people, they're far more likely to open a newspaper or turn on the news or go to a school classroom and learn about racism and anti-racism in in the United States than they are going to learn about racism and colonialism and anti-racism and anti-colonialism in the British colonial context. And that's a real problem that, um, particularly for my generation, more so than the generation that came before us, are really contending with. And that's one of the interventions the article's trying to
1: in the united states we have a huge problem with gentrification which is chasing black folks out of the centers in major cities but not creating alternative places where black folks can grow and prosper and agitate what's the situation
3: with gentrification in britain So London is certainly undergoing a huge amount of gentrification. It's definitely one of the most expensive cities in Europe and is certainly in the top five when it comes to cities in the world. And the the political economy of London has been structured so that real estate investment is one of the fundamental ways in which the capitalist class makes a great deal of its money. And so land in parts of London are at a premium. And like New York, there are many black communities, working class, low income communities, which in previous generations were in unwanted, underdeveloped, neglected parts of the city, but are now prime areas of real estate, because of their proximity to the financial sense of London, the City of London, and other places where the financial system have their offices, but also in the cultural sense of London. They're near the universities, they're near the art galleries, they're near the museums, or they're in short commuting distance from them. And so it, it means that property speculation and real estate investors are circling like vultures in a similar way to the manner in which they are in the United States. I would say that the key difference in the United States to Britain is that we have what's called council housing. I think in the United States you call that project housing. And there are far more government regulations protecting people who live in that kind of accommodation. It's far more difficult for landlords to simply evict. And so they always need the support of local governments, what we call local councils, in order to do that. So Margaret Thatcher, when she came into power, introduced what's called the right to buy, which allowed people to buy their project apartments or their, what's called their council flats. In this country, putting it in onto the private market, meaning that's taken away from low income communities. But what Tony Blair did when he came into power was he went even further and he said, let's just demolish these entire buildings and rebuild them as private sector. Accommodation, which meant they were far more expensive when they were sent over to the private sector. Many of those low-income communities, which were majority black and brown, were no longer able to live there. And we're seeing the kind of gentrification that we're seeing in the United States, where black and brown communities are being forced into suburban areas, where they're having to pay more money to come into the city in order to go into work. They haven't got the kind of cultural and political and religious infrastructure that they had built in the cities in those suburban areas and they're not able to access the kinds of resources that they were able to access when they lived in the city as well. And so we're having huge problems with that. And that's, that's one of the big things that black communities in cities like London are trying to address. I think that one of the other things that's really similar between Bristol and the United States at the moment is the rise of nationalism and the way in which nationalism is being used in order to ameliorate the contradictions of capitalism. So capitalism has increased inequality. It's destroyed cities, it's destroyed communities, it's taken away jobs. But rather than being able to effectively identify the ways in which capitalism has done that. The capitalist class has utilised nationalism to say that the way in which we solve this problem is by rebuilding the nation and harking back to a time when we were apparently great again. So whilst on the one hand the slogan of the current administration in the United States is make America great again, the slogan for the Brexit campaign for Britain to leave the European Union, our current nationalist project is take back control. So both of these are nostalgic, romantic lookbacks at history, which are implicitly white supremacist and implicitly nostalgic about times of more overt and more violent racism. And I think understanding that this kind of nationalist nostalgia isn't simply something that's happening in in the United States, but also something which is happening in Britain, I think can also help us to understand that this global rise of the nationalist rights, whether it be Modi in India or in Turkey or Brazil and elsewhere, is something which we really need to come together in trying to resist and trying to build a coalition in terms of both defeating this resurgence of capitalist power, but also this resurgence of white supremacy.
1: That was black activist and doctoral student Adam Elliott Cooper speaking from Oxford University.
0: America's best-known political prisoner, Mumia Abu-Jamal, is co-author of a book detailing the litany of crimes committed by the United States in the course of its bloody history. Its title Murder Incorporated. Abu Jamal says the U.S. is living up to its reputation as an international assassin.
4: As these words are written, the U.S. empire takes a dangerous step closer to another war in the Middle East after its assassination of an Iranian military leader, Major General Qasem Soleimani, a man revered in two countries, Iraq and Iran, for his military genius in a career spanning decades. General Soleimani was a young man during the ruinous Iraq-Iran War in which over a million souls were lost. He was so highly regarded by Shias that he was known as the living martyr, for his long survival from war. Until, that is, the Americans sent a missile from a drone, ending his life. The Iraq War, based on lies from leading US politicians and intelligence agencies, sent Americans to war in search of weapons of mass destruction and ended up in what foreign policy experts have called the biggest foreign policy blunder in modern U.S. history. For while the war cost trillions in U.S. dollars and lost thousands of American lives, it strengthened immeasurably Iran and gave rise to a Shia spring. Iranian power has waxed while U.S. power has waned. Worse, The lessons of the Iraq War have been lost upon American politicians who wish to impose its hegemony upon the world. Military power is a destructive force, but it is rarely a creative force. The Vietnam War proved that a country can be stronger militarily and still lose The Iraq and Afghanistan wars proved that the objectives of war aren't always awarded to the strongest, but to who can endure. Iraq's parliament has voted that all foreign troops should leave the country, including the Americans. Imperial powers work when they appear to be working on behalf of the occupied country. The U.S. no longer even pretends to do so. Iraq is sick and tired of the American presence. This happens just as the U.S. is on the brink of leaving Afghanistan. What was won? What was lost? America is more hated today than ever. And perhaps, just perhaps, a new war is on its way. Thank you all. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia abu Jamal. These commentaries are recorded by Noel Hanrahan of Prison Radio.
1: The United States has the highest rate of infant mortality in the developed world, and black American mothers die while giving birth at rates comparable to poor countries in the world. But black mothers also suffer very high rates of what's called postpartum depression, a mental health condition that is dangerous to both mother and child. Aneri Patani is an activist and journalist. She wrote an article for Truth Out titled, Black Mothers Are Treated Less for Postpartum Depression Than Other Moms. Patani explains what postpartum depression is.
5: Postpartum depression, basically related to hormonal changes in pregnancy and after giving birth that can lead to a lot of powerful emotions. And sometimes after women give birth, they go away after a week or two, and those are considered sort of informally as baby blues. But postpartum depression is when those types of really strong emotions last for significantly longer. And so women experience things like crying all the time. Also, like feelings of detachment, like they can't bond with their new child or with the rest of their family. They may not feel hungry or eat at all, or they may eat a lot more than normal, may have intense anger, and all these things can last up to a year. So it really hinders the mom's ability to take care of herself and her new child.
1: Yes, and we read that postpartum depression affects one out of every seven mothers, but it's much more prevalent in Black communities. Yeah,
5: so there's not a lot of research on this topic, but what does exist suggests that the rates of postpartum depression are higher in women of color. So as you said, in the general population, postpartum depression affects about one in seven women. For women of color, that rate goes up to about one in three and that can have to do with a lot of different factors. Some of it has to do with toxic stress from enduring racism, both over and more subtle forms. Some of it has to do with the conditions that women are living in. Poverty is a risk factor for postpartum depression, sort of different relationship statuses that one might be in. So, you know, some of the women I spoke to for this were in, for the story, were in abusive relationships at the time, and that Extra stress also contributes as a risk factor for postpartum depression. So there are a lot of different factors that can come into play and and affect how women are feeling at the time.
1: And black women being in poverty in greater proportion than white women are also under the control of government agencies that they fear might take away their kids.
5: Right. And so this is the thing that when I started talking to Black women for this story, I was just sort of interested in, you know, there seems to be a slightly higher rate. What does this mean? And they were really the ones who said to me, well, it's not just about experiencing postpartum depression. It's about this fear of child welfare and the government stepping in and judging us. And so we can't even get treatment. So essentially, a lot of the women I spoke to, there's the idea that there are stereotypes of, of Black women being unfit moms. And so anything that could confirm that stereotype to someone or add to those negative impressions, they don't want to put out there. So a uh, woman I spoke to said, even if they were feeling overwhelming anxiety, if they were crying every day, if they knew something was wrong, they knew it wasn't normal, they'd rather just deal with it themselves than go out, seek help and risk you know, someone saying, well, you're not fit to be a mom. And it's not just in their heads either. Like the Research has shown that this is uh, legitimate fear. There have been studies in different states and at the national level that show that child welfare workers are more likely to place, uh, take kids out of a home, put them in foster care when they're interacting with Black families as opposed to white families.
1: Yes, postpartum depression is classified as a kind of mental illness, and people don't want to be classified that way.
5: Right, exactly. So you're dealing with the general stigma of mental illness, the added burdens of when you're a new mom, you're supposed to be happy and this is supposed to be one of the best experiences in your life. So how can you possibly be sad? Then you add on the factors of race and interaction with government authorities and you sort of have a perfect mix here that prevents people from getting care. And the thing is postpartum depression can actually be treated. You know, when women get antidepressant medications, when they get therapy, that tends to work pretty well. So it's really unfortunate that there are all these barriers to them getting care, because if they did, there are very useful treatments out there.
1: And of course, this postpartum condition is horrible for the mothers, but it puts a real strain and burden on the babies.
5: Yes, absolutely. So in the story, I think there's the example of Portia Smith, this woman I spoke with, who, you know, because of the way she was feeling, and as I mentioned earlier, one of the symptoms with postpartum depression is it makes it really difficult for the mother to bond with the baby. So Portia didn't want to breastfeed her child, even though, you know, her family was telling her this is the best thing for for the kid. She just couldn't even bring herself to want the child that close to her all the time. And so it's just one example of, when moms feel detached or overwhelmed or they're dealing with their own mental illness, right? A lot of the bonding that comes with children at a young age doesn't happen. So they're unable to bond with kids. They're also research shows less likely to follow certain procedures, like having babies sleep on their backs or putting them in car seats. And then long-term, right? This leads to things like kids being more likely to have behavioral issues or to have trouble in school or to have, lower cognitive development. So these are just lifelong consequences that come from that original time period right after birth, where if the mom's struggling, the baby's going to be struggling too.
1: And Black women who are on welfare and don't report these symptoms to welfare workers aren't imagining it when they fear that they'll be declared unfit.
5: No. So there's Research studies out there at uh, the state level, there have been some in New Jersey and Texas. There have also been some nationally that show that even when there are, let's say, you know, there's a white mom and her children and a black mom and her children, same economic levels, uh, dealing with a lot of the same challenges. Welfare workers are more likely to label the black moms as unfit and recommend those kids be removed from the home and put into foster care. So it's not in their heads. It's, it's something that is happening.
1: You also say that different cultures deal with mental problems in different ways, and that is also masking the prevalence of postpartum depression among Black women.
5: Yes, absolutely. So this was another thing that I think was new to me and is probably new to a lot of people. There are certain screening tools that are used for postpartum depression. So when a mom goes into her doctor for a postpartum visit, or oftentimes they're now doing these at the pediatrician's office as well, when moms bring in their kids for a visit, they'll ask them sort of a series of questions. How much have you been sleeping in the past few days? I've felt this depressed. I've been able to laugh in the past few days, et cetera, et cetera. And based on those responses, if women score over a certain number, they'll say, oh, we should follow up with you to see if you have postpartum depression. But in talking to Dr. Alfie Breland Noble, who's a psychiatrist in DC, she said that those tools were made based on research of white women and about the way they communicate around depression or mental illness. And sometimes that means those tools don't work as well for different communities. Her example was her patients in the black community don't use the word depression. That's just not how they explain it. They might say, I'm feeling blue or I'm under the weather or, you know, everything's getting on top of me. So they may not answer that questionnaire in a way that would reflect what the doctor expects. I also had a lactation consultant tell me, you know, she works with a lot of black women. And when they say to her, you know, I'm snapping out, that's a key phrase that leads her to ask more questions. Like, what else is going wrong? How are you feeling? What does snapping out look like? But for someone who doesn't know who isn't in that culture and doesn't recognize what that term means, they may not follow up on it. And so now you have moms who may be saying things that indicate they need help, but it's not being recognized either by the tools or by the medical professionals that they're seeing.
1: And there is also a huge reluctance among the women themselves to seek help.
5: Yes. So it's a concern on many levels, right? Women are scared to go seek help because they don't want to be seen as weak in the first place. They don't want the stigma of mental illness on them. They also don't want to be seen as unfit mothers. They don't want to have to deal with child welfare workers and explain that they still love their child. There's this stereotype that postpartum depression means you want to harm your child or harm yourself. And that's not true. That can be a symptom in some cases, but that is not always the case. And so women are battling that stereotype and they worry as soon as they go say something to their doctor, there's going to be a concern that they're a danger to their child. Another thing that women brought up to me is, particularly for Black women, when you go to the doctor, they don't think the doctor is going to take them seriously. And many of them have had these experiences. Some of them, Portia Smith, who I spoke with, went to her doctor after six months and said, I'm unable to sleep. I'm, I'm crying every single day excessively. I wake up in the middle of the night with anxiety about, did I do close the door or do this? And the doctor was kind of like, oh, well, you know, you're a new mom. That's normal. Everyone's anxious and dismissed her. And if she was very determined to get help and she went to another provider and another provider until someone took her seriously and helped her get therapy and medication, But that's something that, you know, we've seen through research, through examples with Serena Williams, that a lot of times black women's claims are not taken seriously. So why bother going to the doctor in the first place?
1: It appears that this terrible problem requires not just more education among the victims and among the different professionals involved, but a whole community discussion.
5: Yeah, I think there's a lot of different factors that could help. And speaking to Black psychiatrists, people who specialize in working with the Black community, one of the big things they said is, you know, it has to do with listening, listening from providers who have to be more open-minded, listening from family and friends also who might recognize when a woman is suffering some of these symptoms and, you know, can suggest she get help or can also help advocate for her in front of the doctor that she needs help. So there are a lot of different people who can come in and play a supporting role here.
0: And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com where you will find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's www.blackagendareport.com. It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis. From the black left, I'm Nellie Bailey, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network.